Amen, church. It is because of God's grace that we are here today. Amen. And that we can open up these Bibles and read from them. And if you will, open up your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And if you do not own a Bible uh, today, you may look in front of you in the pew and there's a Bible there for you, hopefully. Uh, If not, look down the way a little bit. You can grab one of those pew Bibles and consider that a gift to you. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to have one and your own possession that you may read and that you may learn more of Christ. And if you need to help, help finding Hebrews, just turn to page 1009 and you'll get there, all right? And if some of you have heard us call that page number out for a while. Yes, we have been here for a while and we are enjoying every bit of it. So we're here in Hebrews 13. We're going to read the verse, first six verses here together. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you for his life shed on the cross, broken Lord, that we could have life. We could have resurrection as he rose from the grave. We too rise from the deadness of our sin and have life in Christ, a victory over sin. And our minds can be set on the kingdom, the kingdom to come, and the kingdom which is now as we reign here on this earth, as we serve each day you and one another. And Father, with this kingdom-mindedness, we worship. We have kingdom-minded worship. So, Father, I just ask that now you would bless this message as it goes forth, God, that we would be attentive today, that we would hear your word. God, give us ears to hear. And, Lord, that our hearts would receive this message. God, do this great work. We ask that you be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. We're picking up where we left off last week in kingdom-minded worship, and we looked at uh, really the first two verses, and we're going to look at the last four today, but last week in looking at kingdom-minded worship, we said that if we have our minds set on a kingdom that is unshakable, then it should be reflected in the way that we live our lives, that it should be seen in what we value. People know us by what we value, what is important to us, and last week we were Uh, As we looked at this, we saw that kingdom-minded worship values brotherly love, and it values hospitality towards one another. And this week, we're looking at hospitality extended, uh, not only just to strangers, but also in the way that we treat one another as the church. And as we look to this next point today, we're just going to jump right into it because we have a good bit to cover. We see that the kingdom-minded worshiper values the body of Christ. It is a great value on Christ, 
that he is above all but the body of Christ, being those who believe in Jesus, who have been brought together, and Christ is the head of this body, which leads us to sympathize with one another. The good news is that we have Jesus who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And when we saw that earlier in Hebrews, that meant that he sympathizes with our temptations because Jesus was tempted. Write this down. Make sure you remember this. Just because you're tempted does not mean that you have done something wrong. Jesus was tempted. Jesus never sinned being tempted, but Jesus was tempted. Jesus never did anything wrong. And so with Jesus being tempted, we are tempted as well. So when that temptation comes, we know that we can look to Jesus who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And at times when we fall into these sins, we look to Jesus and say, you, you never fell in that sin. You were always perfect. And yet you understand what we're facing. And in the same way that he sympathizes with us, we ought to sympathize with one another in the struggles in which we face in following Jesus. That's what we see here in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Maybe you saw this past week, Jamie Foxx was in his home and up on the hill, and he heard a car crash. And so he comes down to see what's going on, and he sees that a vehicle is burning and that there's a man inside. And so he quickly goes to the aid of this man who was inside, and they had to cut the seatbelt, and there was another guy helping him. They were able to pull this man from the car. And afterwards, they conducted an interview, and they said, they must have said, man, you're a hero, because, I mean, in his response, he said, man, I'm not, it wasn't heroic. He said, it was just something I should do. And what he's admitting to in that moment is saying, when I come down the hill and I see that there's a car on fire and there's a man inside, it is my responsibility then to go help him. And that's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm just um, fulfilling a role. I'm, I'm taking responsibility. Who would I be? What kind of human being would I be that if I saw this car on fire and this man inside that I would just walk away and say, no, not having any business of that. No, it's my responsibility. So it's not heroic at all. It's just something I was supposed to do. And when we look to this passage in verse 3, we see that it is the responsibility of the church to care for one another and to remember each other. And so we have this responsibility. And it's not just lip service. This is true servanthood. So as the early church would gather together in worship, then they were scattered into different places because of persecution. People who wanted to kill them or throw them into prison because they loved Jesus. That was their crime. And so because of loving Jesus too much, they were scattered abroad. And some of them were put in prison. But for those who were able to escape and who were able to continue to meet together, the writer is pinning this to them and he's saying, hey, don't forget those who were in prison because they're just like you. It's just like your body being in prison because you're together as one. And that gives us a good idea of where he's going with this encouragement. And it was not uncommon for Christians to sell some of their most precious possessions in order to have the money to go and travel and see their brothers and sisters in Christ who were in prison. And they would go visit them at the risk of them being put in prison as well. So it shows the love that they have as they come together. We looked at the brotherly love last week and the hospitality, and it just rolls into this looking after each other, even when in prison, even when going through struggles. It wasn't like, hey, man, that's not me. That's them. They got caught, not me. That's not my problem. No, that, that wasn't their heart. It was them because they're the body of Christ, and there they are remembering each other in the most difficult of times because they value Jesus 
as most precious. Because Jesus had saved their lives from the dominion of sin, because he had brought them together, who maybe at times they were strangers. We even talked about last week how it was made up of different groups of people could be slave and slave master. They come together in worship because Jesus breaks down all those walls of hostility, and here they come together. They remember each other in all times because the church is the family of God. See, we've made church to be so many other things, and we forget that it's the family of God. That's that's why we're gathered here today. You're visiting with us today. You want to know what we're about? We're the family of God. You know, it becomes so programmatic. It becomes uh, so consumeristic in, in how we try to reach people. But really what people need to understand that if you belong to the church, it's because you are grateful for what Christ did for you. And you acknowledge that God is creator and that he loves us and that he sent his son. And that because he sent his son on the cross to die for our sins, we can have life. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit reigning in us, leading us to do what's good. Because here's the truth. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't even know what's good before God. And so with this truth, we come together as the family of God and we worship. It's a, it's a group of reborns. Because being born the first time didn't take. It wasn't enough. So if you're here today and you think, hey, man, I've been born into this world. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. It's not enough. You must be reborn. You must have new life in Christ. You must be a follower of Jesus. And so we are so grateful that this family is not separated by race and gender and, or status. It does not divide us. That divides countries. It divides the world. It divides certain religions, and it can divide us if we're not careful. But no, the church, the body of Christ, is not divided by these things. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some people will abuse this text, and they'll say, see, uh, you're neither male or female, so those roles don't matter anymore. No, they, they matter. Men, you have a role. Women, you have a role. And they're precious roles. They matter. But God doesn't love man more than he loves woman or woman more than he loves man. That's, what is the, that's the point here. We're seeing that one doesn't have more value than the other. And so together, uh, many times a bunch of misfits, a bunch of people coming together in Christ, they all have the same value because it's Jesus, Jesus who makes them who they are. The early church truly valued one another as one values his own body. That's how they cared for one another. It wasn't just because you were in one community group and they were in another community group, so we can't minister to each other. Um, Or you don't go to my local church, so you're not in my jurisdiction, okay? You go to that other church. They can take care of you. No, if you were part of the church, they valued each other as having the same body. Think about your body. Um, Say you sprain your ankle, okay? That happens. Anybody just had a really bad sprained ankle recently? Okay, so we can just, you know, okay, have you ever sprained your ankle before? All right, it's cold in here. Let's see some activity, okay, across the room. All right, I get it. Yeah, it's, it's cold. It's chilly. Uh, yeah, you, you sprain your ankle, and, and man, that thing hurts. What do you do? You get a bucket, you put some ice in it, put some water in it. Okay, you know what's coming next. And then you have to put your foot in that bucket of ice water. And man, it's painful. I mean, when your toe just begins to touch that water, I mean, you do a little dance. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that, like that, all right? So you got to put your foot in that bucket of ice water because you know that that's how your ankle is going to be healed. You take care of it. It can be painful, but you do what is necessary. I mean, you're cutting some vegetables. I mean, this is how you do them right here, right? And you cut your, your, your finger, your hand. What do you do? You're quick to get a bandage. You're quick to cover up and stop that bleeding. Why? Because you care for your body. You don't want to bleed out right there. 
So as you take care of yourself, when something happens, immediately you come to your own rescue. We see that the church being one body, they come to the rescue. They care for one another because when a brother is in prison, it's just like them being in prison. When somebody is struggling over here or being persecuted or mistreated, they're right there by their side because it's just like them being mistreated. It extends beyond your family of four or your, your marriage of two or your singleness of one. No, you are a part of something much greater and you truly care for one another. This is a model of those who have kingdom-minded worship. It's something much bigger than themselves. They worship God, they love him, and yet this is seen that they have their eyes set on a kingdom that is unshakable. So they did this at the risk of their own lives. Why? Because they look after one another. And Jesus says that they're going to be those who stand before him and say, hey, Lord, did we not do all these great things? Did we not call upon your name? I mean, you think it's just that we're kidding when we're looking at Scripture and there are people who call themselves Christians who aren't really Christians. And every week you ought to be attentive to this. And you ought to be taking what you're hearing from the Word and applying it to your life and examining and saying, am I a follower of Jesus? Because here's a follower of Jesus. And he explains, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the response, as it goes in Matthew 25, are those who are true followers, they go, hey, when did, when did we see you in this position? When did we see you hungry and we gave you something, or thirsty and we gave you something to drink? Or when were you naked, Jesus, and we clothe you? And then he responds, he says, for the least of the brothers you do unto me. He said, no, not me, not that I was naked and you came and covered me up or that I was hungry and you gave me some food. No, that you did this for the church. You did this for the other brothers. When you did that, you were doing it to me. But those who neglected, those who looked at it and said, "Uh uh-uh, man, not my deal. Dude, that's your problem. That's your problem, man. You you got yourself in that situation. You should have kept your mouth shut. Shouldn't let people know you love Jesus that much, man. You go in prison. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to live my life. Uh Uh-uh, leave me alone. Lock the door, right? And, uh, and, and, And these people who come before him, they stand and say, hey, didn't I speak your name? Didn't I say things? He said, I don't, uh uh-uh. I don't know you. You don't you associate with me because when all this happened, you ignored me. So the question may be, are you ignoring Christ today? When you look around and you see the church and you see that there are needs and you go, not my problem, man. Not my problem. Man, when you hear that somebody's being persecuted over in Iraq or Syria or China and you go, hey, man, not my problem, What's going on on the last year of American Idol? That's what matters. Let's see what's going on. And we quickly turn our attention as if there are not people persecuted all around the world today that we can't stop and and pray for them as if we are that person because they're part of the body. And yet this was taking place in the first century and they would pray for each other. We see a great example of this in Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Peter was in prison again, okay? Peter was in prison a good bit because he loved Jesus a lot. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter's in prison, and there's this earnest prayer. That word earnest, if you look at it, means continual and intense. It was ongoing. This intense prayer leads to this intense fellowship, and they would draw together, and they were praying for Peter while he was in prison. And then in the night, 
God sends provision and leads Peter out of the prison. And then he comes to the house and he knocks. And the girl that opens, I believe her name was Rhoda. Awesome name. Okay, and she opens the door, or no, she sees that he's at the door, and she's so excited, she leaves him outside, and she goes and tells everybody, and they're like, Rhoda, go open the door. And she goes and opens the door, and in comes Peter. And then they begin to explain, hey, we were praying for you, Peter, and now here you are. But get this, in, Rome, in Acts 12, 5, while he was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to the church. While he was in prison, they were praying for him. What were they praying for? They were praying for his release. They were praying for his protection. And then God delivered him out of prison. And then he comes, and here's what we do with this story, and here's what we do when God answers prayer in our lives many times. We go, oh, that's just coincidence. I mean, he was going to get out anyway. God was going to do it whether I prayed or not. But here's the thing. You don't know that. You don't know that. You're called to be faithful and pray. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's, it's powerful, as we see in the book of James, chapter 5. And so... Here they're praying, and then what happens next? God delivers Peter. And that's the power of praying and remembering each other, meaning that there are times when we rejoice together, and there are times when we suffer together. And I believe that for the most part, especially the American church, churches in America, we're all about rejoicing together, aren't we? We want to rejoice together. You want to come in, and you want something to rejoice about? You want to be happy, 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 happy? right? But what about suffering together? What about suffering? Do you suffer with one another, together with one another? Do you remember those who are suffering all around the world? Or would you go, hey, not our problem. Should have been born in the United States, bro. Too bad. And that's what we do at times. We, we shut it off. We say, man, I'm not one of those people. Don't think I'm going to go around the world and minister to people. Uh-uh. I'm not a radical Christian like that. That's, that's for the radical, crazy Christians. Or is it for the Christian? And so here we see people who really care for each other as if it's their own body, and there they are, the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. So this is another way in which we see the value of the kingdom-minded worshiper. And then it goes on, and, and, and it's going to seem like we're totally jumping topics because we are, but hey, that's how we wrote it. That's how we're going, all right? So the next one is the kingdom-minded worshiper values marriage. Not only did they value the body of Christ, they valued marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, some of you are about to perk up. You're about to start listening, and I'm glad. Okay, here we go. All right, he says honor. Okay, honor, that word means value. Value marriage. May you value marriage. Believe it or not, in the first century and the early centuries, um, there were those who valued celibacy, that Christians should not get married, that they're better to not get married, they don't have as many problems, that could be true, but it, that they would be better off and more holy. More holy if you didn't get married. And so stay away from marriage because marriage is evil. And yet we see in Scripture, it's saying marriage should be honored. Yet then there's also the problem that's been there from the very beginning is unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness within marriage, as we see with adultery. Did this unfaithfulness just start becoming a problem here in the last century? No, it's always been a problem. Why? Because man has always had a faithfulness issue because he wishes to remain faithful first to his own sinful desires. That's the struggle in marriage. Not remaining faithful to a spouse, but faithful to his own sinful desires. But here we have this 
picture of marriage, this value of marriage. And obviously, it's the value of marriage is decreasing in our culture all around us, but it's not decreasing in the eyes of God. Now, he still has a high view of marriage because marriage is his idea. He is the one, just like he created you and me, he created marriage. There would be no marriage without God. Okay, that's what people don't want to admit. God created man, he created woman, and he brings them together as one. So he decides what marriage really is. He brings them together as one. This is his idea, and he loves the idea of marriage. God loves the idea of marriage. Why does he love the idea of marriage? Because it is a picture. Every marriage is a picture of Christ who is his son, who is the groom, and the bride, the body of Christ, coming together in a covenant that will never, ever be broken. That's why he loves marriage. He loves marriage, and he hates divorce. And before you check out, before you think I'm picking on you, no, you need to hear God's word. We're all under this. God values marriage more than any of us value marriage. And it is his idea to begin with. And yet it's this wonderful picture of the gospel. So marriage has to do more with God than it does with you and me. What do you think about that? Marriage has more to do with God than it does with you and me. Marriage should be more about the gospel than our needs. That's marriage. You're not going to hear, hey, you're not going to hear that among the world. Mm -mm. You're going to hear that I want to get married because of the benefits. I want to get married because you can get married. We should be able to get married because you can get married. Wrong motive. Wrong motive. I want to get married because the gospel is enhanced. We have a beautiful picture of a man and a woman coming together to give glory to God. Now, marriage is a lot of work, all right? And marriage is a lot of work, not just for the marriages that are struggling. Marriage is a lot of work for the good marriages too, right? It takes a lot of work. But yeah, I'm really concerned for this young generation, so I'm just gonna talk to you for a minute because you're being brought up in a culture that does not value marriage at all. And probably if we were to sit down and interview you we may be shocked by how you view marriage just because of what is being told to you all the time, what you're hearing. And it breaks my heart for you. And I want you to really listen into this of what we're about to talk about, okay? Love you guys dearly. And because we love you dearly, we want you to hear the gospel truth is that marriage is God's idea. And yet many people enter into marriage because they're selfish. They enter into marriage because they just want somebody. They enter into marriage because they think that that somebody is going to fill their life and they're going to be, be complete from that point forward. That's not true. Whatever man that you're praying for and hoping for, ladies, he's not your savior. And guys, whatever hot chick you're praying for, right, that you're praying for, she's not your savior. Your little boyfriends and your girlfriends, they're not your saviors. They don't complete what is void in your life. But understand this, when we talk about marriage, if you truly wanna understand what marriage is all about, dig into the Bible. And listen as we go through this, because you're not learning what marriage is by our culture. That's depraved, that's fallen. It is so selfish and about your needs that what's missing is God being glorified in it all. 
And listen here, guys, it's not just for you. It's for all of us. Because what you're learning, and sadly what you're learning, is because how many of us have failed in other areas. So let us go to the Bible for our instruction. Can I get an amen from the front two rows? There it is, I love it, all right? So listen to this. The danger of marriage is that we make it conditional. Hey, I'm happy as long as you meet my needs. But when my needs aren't being met, I'm out. That's not what marriage should be based on. It shouldn't be conditional because our relationship with Jesus is not conditional. There are days in which we don't even open up the Bible or pray or speak the name of Jesus. Does he say, I'm out. I'm done with you. You didn't even call upon me today. You didn't recognize I was in the room. You didn't even recognize what I was wearing. No. He loves you. And he knows that you're not going to meet all of his needs. So he comes to meet your needs. He gives you everything that you need. His love. His love. See, the danger is that we make marriage conditional. And that is not a good reflection of our salvation, of our covenant with God. Praise God that he didn't make this covenant that we're in, this new covenant with Christ, conditional based on what we do for him. And yet, we see that the biggest hindrance for kingdom-minded worship is how we view marriage. You know, you may be here today and you want to be married. You so desperately want to be married. I'm not gonna make fun of you. And I'm not gonna look at you as if you're weird for wanting to be married. But understand this, check your motives at the door. If you wanna be married so that you can feel whole and complete and satisfied and good and viewed by others as acceptable, that's not the motive for being married. Now, Christ fulfills that. And you can trust him that if he has that person for you, he is gonna bring them in your path. I truly believe that when you get married, that person is true with us because God has ordained it for you to be with that person. I'm so glad he ordained me to be with Curry. I feel bad for her sometimes that he ordained me to be with her, all right? But she shows a lot of grace. But here's, here's the big hindrance to kingdom-minded worship, and, and this is what's being highlighted here because we're about to do a series called Reclaiming Love in February. I'm looking forward to that, and we'll deal more with relationships. But for today, we're really dealing with unfaithfulness, and so we need to address this. We see that sexual immorality and adultery are a big hindrance to the spread of the gospel. You see, the problem is, is that marriage should be a reflection of God's love, not a reflection of man's lust. And many times, that's what it deals with, man's lust. Now, I'm not just talking about the man. I'm talking about the woman, too. What you lust for a woman, and man, what you lust for. That's what your marriage becomes about. And also that we don't value one another, but we just survive one another. Some of you right now in your homes, you're just surviving each other. You may have us full, but you don't have God full. You may be sleeping in separate bedrooms right now. Uh, you have your bed, and, and a lot of times it's the husband on the couch. Okay, how's that working for you? Seeing the chiropractor lately, right? All right, so look, you're separated because you're just, you're, you're surviving one another. You're not in love. And yet marriage, which is God's idea, is this great love between one another, just to be shared. Till death do you part. 
death separates that covenant. And yet, something has come in the way. I mean, you, you share the same address and the same last name, but you do not share life together. And so, when we look at this separation, we look at sin. Because sin separates and divides. And so, if there's separation in your home right now, it's not God's fault. You look to the sin which is dividing you. What is that? And here's what happens. We begin to say, you know what? I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be treated this way, right? That's what we say. And so you start going to look in other areas into other people who recognize you and will give you something you deserve, which is attention. I'm just going to pull back the arrow right now, and I'm going to shoot a hole right through that, okay? You ready? Who said you don't deserve What do you deserve? Oh, I deserve better. I deserve better than this. So, so God is reigning as God. And here you are struggling in your marriage, and you're looking to God saying, I don't deserve this, God. What do you think God's response is going to be to that? Now, you may not like what you're hearing right now, but let me tell you something. It's not up to you to talk about what you deserve. And that's the problem. We start believing that we deserve something more. And then we put the, all, our own conditions on what we deserve. Oh, well, she doesn't spend enough time with me in the bedroom. Or, you know, oh, he doesn't listen to me enough. He doesn't want to talk. He doesn't, no, he doesn't understand me. But this other person does, and that's why I'm leaving. You see, when adultery happens, it doesn't just happen in the split moment. No, it happened in your heart long ago. You, you've been thinking about it. You've been romanticizing. You've been fantasizing. And yet that in itself is adultery. But yet that physical act, when you commit the physical act of adultery, it's not just you fulfilling needs. What you're doing is you are tearing apart that covenant, that one flesh union. God's idea of marriage, you're destroying because of your needs. You deserve more. There is forgiveness for those who have committed adultery. There is full forgiveness because Jesus died for that adultery on the cross. So you don't have to walk around with a big A on you, okay? Everybody point at you. No, there's forgiveness, but there are great consequences to that action. Maybe right now you're entertaining the idea of an adultery, of, a, of an affair. You're thinking about it. And I guarantee you, in a room this size, there could be some premeditation going on where you understand that it is destructive. It's not good for you. It's not good for the other person, no matter how exciting it may be. It destroys. It destroys you. It destroys your spouse. It destroys your family if you have kids. It's not even thinking. What it does, it shuts everybody out, and it's you being God. And redefining what you think marriage should be in that moment. The gospel cannot advance in that moment. Marriage and sexual intimacy should thrive. Not just because you're attracted to one another. No, because God's love. Yes, God's love should be what motivates man and woman to come together. 
So that sexual intimacy in the home, in marriage, is worship. You go, you're freaking me out now. But it is. He created it for marriage. But it also talks about sexual immorality for those who aren't married, who are dating. And you're saying, hey, I, I can have sex with this person because I love them. I care for them. Really? Those are your credentials? Sex is God's idea for marriage. In church, sadly, we're not presenting a good example for the world. We look to the world and say it's the world's fault for what all's going on here. No, it's the worldliness in the church that's a great problem. For you young people, if you're saying, I need intimacy, I, I mean, look, I mean, he loves me, he cares for me. Look, it's much bigger than that. It's much greater than that. You want to be miserable? You want to feel terrible? You want to feel that destruction, that sin? Then go right ahead. But you're not going to have joy in it. And for our young men in the room, if you're looking to pornography to think that that's how your married life's going to be, dude, you have been misled. That's sickening. That's you fantasizing. You being king. And so, obviously, you can tell I've kind of settled in on this point because I'm very passionate about it. But what leads us to sexual immorality and adultery? We know this. It's sin. It's our own sinful cravings. What's the danger in it? Well, here's the greatest danger in it. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's the greatest danger of sexual immorality and adultery. You say, what does that mean, that if I've committed adultery or sexual immorality, that God's going to judge me guilty, that I've committed some sin that Jesus didn't cover? No, uh-uh. This is for those who commit sexual immorality and keep going as if it's no big deal. I mean, I don't care what you say. I'm still going to do it. Or adultery, and you say, I don't care, man. My wife, uh-uh. She, no longer do I love her. I'm leaving her. I'm done. I'm just and you just, you convince yourself it's right. You're in a dangerous place because you are not being kingdom-minded. You are not presenting the gospel. You're not living out the gospel. You have talked yourself into sinning again and again and again as if God is pleased with that, and he's not. That type of heart, you should be greatly concerned with because that's rebellion against God. That's rebellion against God. That's what he's saying to the early church. He's saying, if you fall into this, you're rebelling against God. You're walking away. So all that you've heard about being a follower of Christ, you're saying, I'm in. Until that part right there, I'm out. Uh-uh. What does that prove? It could, it could prove that you are not a follower of Jesus. Now, don't walk out of here and say that, hey, I didn't save myself for marriage, or I had an adultery. Brian said I'm not a Christian. I didn't say that. But if you've made up your mind that you're going to do it anyway, and you just keep walking in that direction, and there's no turning around, just understand that you will face judgment before God. And there is no way, listen, there is no way that you can be gospel-centered and be involved in sexual immorality and adultery at the same time. There's not. You're going to leave the one to go to the other. You, you, there's no way. And that's what we need to understand here. 
about intimacy, about marriage. It's not something to be toyed with, experimented with. Man, I just wanted to see if we liked being together. Look, if that's what your marriage is based on, sexual intimacy, it's going to crumble. There's a greater love out there. There's a greater love. Now, can great sexual intimacy come from that? Yes, but it should not be built. Your marriage should not be built on that. Hear this as we transition to our last point. This is what Timothy Keller says. He says, for us today, sex is just a means to an end. It is not a holy, sacred thing. You do it with whomever. Money is very, very sacred. So you don't share it with anybody. Christians are the opposite because in Christianity, sex is seen as a holy thing in itself. Something you don't share with anybody but your spouse. Money is not that big of a deal. You share it with whomever. Christians are promiscuous with their money, not with their bodies. Wow, that's profound. Because that's what we do. With our sexuality, we're pretty open. With our money, we're pretty closed. When it should be the opposite. Money we should give away. We should be looking at how we can give to others and care for others as well. And we don't like this last part, but we got to go through it. Here it is. The kingdom-minded worshiper values God's provision. Meaning to keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So let us be clear. We're not talking about money here. We're talking about the love of money. Not just money, but the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You get that? They've wandered away from the faith because of money. So understand that money is not your helper. Money's not your helper. God is. And money will forsake you. Money will leave you. God will not. We get in trouble when we start talking about my money. My money. My money. We put our claim to that money. Because when you begin to, to think, my money, who gave you life? Who gave you the beating heart? Who gave you the lungs to take in the oxygen? Who gave you the strength to go and do that job? It wasn't you. It was God. Everything you own is His. It's His. So, understand that marriage, as we talked about a minute ago, cannot heal your worldliness. The love of money feeds your worldliness. You want to continue in worldliness? You want to grow in worldliness? Love money. Want more money. Can't get enough money. What is that next job where I can have more money? It's not being content with what you have right now. You're thinking that what you have in the future is always better. Instead of understanding that what you have is far greater than anything you'll ever possess monetarily. He'll never leave you. Nor forsake you. What? What a great promise. What a great promise we have here in verse 5. If you get caught up with the love of money, you will never have enough. We took the boys recently um, to Jumpin' Jacks, big inflatables inside, big warehouse. Great fun. 
I'm like, where was that when I was a kid, you know? And we take the kids and we, we let them go. Boom. Go have fun on the inflatables, okay? You lose them every now and then, but you know they're in the room somewhere, all right? And then there's the section over here where there's arcade games. And I love the basketball game. I dominate that thing. It's like, right? right? But anyway, so we get over to the arcade, and my oldest son, he says, Dad, I, can I have some money? Can I play this game? And I'm like, son, just go push the buttons, man. It's fun. It's colorful. It's great, you know? Like, act like you're really playing it, you know? Yeah, I know I can be a lousy dad sometimes. And, and so... He says, no, I want money. I, I want the thing to put in there. I want to play for real. And I said, okay. So broke out a five, got him some tokens. He goes in and threw it like that, right? Gets all his tickets. We start counting them. And his little brother, Paxton, is just like, oh, wide up. Like, what are we doing with the tickets? What's going on? And we go up to the counter, and they see all these toys. And for 10 tickets, you can get a piece of candy. And for 50 tickets, you can get this little dinosaur toy. For 100 tickets. And then for like 5,000 tickets, you can get a basketball that's $5 at the store. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, man, it's going to take a lot of money. You get a rubber basketball, right? And so I'm like, man, you got your kids fooled. But they're there, and they're looking at all these things. And he's like, I don't know what I want, Dad. And I'm like, hey, well, here's the, the cabinet you got to be interested in. Don't even go to this cabinet, okay, bud? We weren't that victorious, okay? We're over here. Okay, this is what you got. And he begins to pick out stuff. And, you know, I just watch. And I begin to think back at how I'm that kid at the counter. And I'm like, no, I don't want this section. I want this section. But being in this section is not good enough. I want the bigger toys. No, I want the rubber basketball. That's it. That's what I want. And that's what we do with life. He's sitting there saying, all all I have are are 50 tickets. And ended up getting them those candy bracelets that you put around and you (laughs) eat at, right? Brooker's broke, and so we're like, yeah, five seconds, hurry up, pick it up, right? And then Paxton, I mean, his is gone within the minute. He's just got this little wet string hanging on him, right? He's like, man, that was awesome. I mean, but think about it. That's, that's how we are with material things. I mean, we just can't get enough. I mean, it's like that little brace. Like, ah, I mean, we just got to get after it. And then all of a sudden, we go, I need more. What else do you have for me? Hey, let's put some more money in the machine. Come on, let's get some more tokens. Let's go play, let's go play, let's go play. Or a rubber basketball? And yet, we think that if we have that next house, we have that next car, we have that next job, that everything's going to be good. And for the early church, they had to be careful because their deal was they could lose everything. They could lose their house. They could lose their transportation. Be it a donkey or whatever, but they could lose it. That, that's what he's saying, don't love money. Don't love your material things. All that can be taken away, but it's okay. We have an unshakable kingdom. When everything is shaken, man, it's the kingdom that's going to be left standing. You'll be left standing because I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do not neglect the gospel. Do not run away when your possessions are taken from you because you love Jesus. And yet we have a lot of possessions, and we're wanting more possessions. You see, the sad thing is, is that Many times we're comparing what we don't have to what others have, to what other people have. I mean, what does that matter? What does that matter what other people have? They have a nicer house than us or a nicer car. Because what we want as followers of Christ is to be content. Do you really think that there's contentment in that next bigger house or that next nicer car? Maybe for a little bit. I mean, you can ride in style for a little bit. But then you wish you had that new model. It's always going to be something more out there. I mean, surely you're not desiring to have more stuff that you'll have more to ensure and take care of and clean. 
right? That's not our desire. No, we want to be satisfied, right? We can be satisfied in what God provides for us. Living within our means, and even if it's taken from us, we don't go, well, God, if you're going to do that, then forget it. No. We say, to you be the glory. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. Oh, what if that were our heart this week as we go out of this place? That yet we take care of the things that we have, but we're not hungry after the next thing. But that we know that this fact right here, Kent Hughes points out that this would be enough. We will be content if we truly embrace the fact that we have God. Can you be content with that? Can you be content with that? That you have God? That he is your Lord? He's your Father? He's your Savior? And that what he's storing up for you in the future, what he has prepared, is much greater than anything you would have here. Can we be content with that? Can we start there? Do not be a lover of money. One who embraces that they have God, and that He is their possess. We are His possession. That is the kingdom-minded worshiper. First Timothy six six through eight. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Read it again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Wow. Food and clothing. With these we'll be content. If we just have a few garments, some food to eat, we'll be content with that. We're good. I mean, to keep going day to day. Why? For the glory of God. To spread the message. Yeah, that's why you're here. Did you know that you didn't bring anything into this world? And guess what? You can't take anything with you. So maybe when you drive up to your house or, or wherever you may be, your apartment, whatever, you just do a little walk through go, wow, you mean I can't take that? <laughs> I can't take that with me? I can't take all these, oh, man, then you go to the china cabinet. <laughs> I can't take all that china? I can't take it with me? No. I mean, it's nice. It looks good in your dining room. It does. But you can't take it with you. You go hop in your car and you drive and say, hey, can't take this home. Can't take this with me. Put it in perspective, the things that you're chasing after. What if it were all taken away from you? Are you prepared for it to all be taken away from you? Are you ready for that? You say, oh, that couldn't happen. I'm not a doomsday prepper. Maybe you are. Mad props to you, okay? Coming to your house when it happens, all right? But what if it is taken away? What if things do change drastically? Are you still standing on Christ? Or will it be found that you are standing on all your material things? That's something to ponder. When Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, examined the Christians and reported back to the emperor of Trajan, he had to admit, even though he was looking for a charge on which to condemn them, that at their Lord's Day meeting, this is what he said, they bound themselves by an oath, not for any criminal end, but to avoid theft or robbery or adultery, never to break their word or repudiate a deposit when called upon to refund it. In the early days, the Christians presented such a purity to the world that not even their critics and their enemies 
could find a fault in it. So what about when your critics and your enemies look on you? Do they see purity? Do they see that you have this great value for the body of Christ, great value for marriage, whether you're married or not, and a great value for God's provision and not a love of money? And as we looked at last week, that you value brotherly love and hospitality towards strangers. So I think what we've seen here in Hebrews 13 as we get to the end of this letter is a time of examination. But we see all these things. This is, should be shown what you value. Do you value these things? And if you've heard these messages in the past two weeks, you've heard this message today, and you're going, wow, that, that's hit my heart. Let, deal with it. Let God deal with it right now. And work in your heart. May we just have a time of repentance. You say, what, what do I need to do? Repent. Look to Christ. Look to God and his forgiveness and his love that your life can be built on Christ. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, there are many things that tempt us to stop sharing the gospel and living out the gospel. Lord, may we be kingdom-minded, not with our eyes always set on what's going on in this world, but being kingdom-minded, may we be better in this world to be used by you. God, these values, these areas that we've looked at in these first six verses have been a great challenge in my own life through personal study. And I'm sure it's a great challenge for all who are here. Father, I ask today that you do a great work of salvation, that those who are empty of Christ today would be filled with Christ, or that they would build their life on Christ. We're going to completely change the way they live their life here on this earth and all for your glory. Father, I just ask now that you continue to work among us, that we take what we've heard, that we examine our lives by it. God, if it's a work of revival, a work of repentance, work in us these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.